Our reading this week comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, right at the end of the first book of the New Testament. And we're going to read the first ten verses together. And after we hear these words, we're going to listen to the words of a short reflection, a spoken word piece which the Evangelical Alliance have produced and have shared with us. And we're going to reflect on what these words mean to us today, though they were written 2,000 years ago by Matthew. But we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, these words. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it this morning. What is the most significant thing about your normal, not during lockdown, your normal Easter experience? Round about this time of year, there is an abundance of chocolate. It's amazing how often we find an excuse to have an abundance of chocolate around, but there are Easter eggs and there are all sorts of other things themed around Easter, Easter bunnies and and all sorts of things. There are hot cross buns. There is, perhaps for you on Easter Sunday, um, some kind of big Sunday dinner with your family. There is roast lamb or beef or whatever it might be. There is being together with family, and that's, I know, a great difficulty for us this year, isn't it? But this year has perhaps caused us to question more than any other time in our lives what is truly significant. And it's very interesting, isn't it, that a lack of something we feel is in some way wrong at Easter time, just as it was at Christmas time. Not having chocolate eggs or... or, um, loads of food, or not having time with family, an absence of those things, an emptiness in those areas seems wrong to us. It seems to lessen our experience, diminish our joy at this particular time of year. And it's perfectly understandable why that is. But it's strange when we ask ourselves, what is Easter actually all about? Because Easter is all about the lack of something. It is an empty tomb, something that isn't there where it ought to be. That is what defines the Easter story, isn't it? And that's peculiar when we tend to flip it all on its head and make Easter about all the things we do have, as opposed to the one thing that was missing on that first Easter Sunday. 
When it comes to Easter, I'm sure we um, understand and know most of the story. Jesus was born in Bethlehem and lived his life as a carpenter up until about the age of 30. And around the age of 30, he left home and left his family behind, gathered a small group of men around him, and traveled around the region of Judea and the Roman Empire and preached and taught the people, called them to repentance, called them to know that the kingdom of God was at hand, that it had come and performed the most amazing of miracles. What he taught was that God had sent him to save the world. And that's an amazing claim, isn't it? It's an outlandish claim for anyone, and yet Jesus could back that claim up. He could turn water into wine. He could walk on water. He could heal the sick. He could raise the dead to life, so much so that nobody could deny the reality of all his miracles, and therefore struggled to deny the reality of his claims to be God and Savior of mankind. God then leads him to Jerusalem, where he is put on trial for things he has never done. He is then sentenced to death for crimes he has never committed. And God pours out upon him all his wrath and fury for sins, not that Jesus has committed, but that we have committed, and when we confess them, have been placed on Christ. Jesus dies on that cross 2,000 years ago, so that we don't have to die. But then three days later, we read in the Gospels, as we did earlier in Matthew 28, that Jesus is raised to life again. He is not in the tomb. And that raising to new life is God's way of testifying that Jesus' death on the cross for our sins was successful, that the payment was made, was completed, that it was satisfactory. For when Jesus was raised to new life, it was because there was nothing else to be paid for. Sin was gone. It had been removed. It was finished, as Jesus said on that cross on Good Friday. And so when Jesus is raised to new life, we have complete confidence that when he says, I have paid for your sins, if you will have me as your Lord and Savior, that our sins are truly paid for. If they weren't, he would still be in the tomb 2,000 years on. Jesus had come to put sin to death because sin had corrupted the world from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when man and woman first rebelled against God and simply couldn't put the problem right. None of us can. But Jesus came to put that right and to forgive people their sins so they wouldn't be judged and then punished, but would be given everlasting life so that when we die, we will be raised to new life and be with him forever. But there was a problem. And that problem was people didn't want to hear that. And people today still don't want to hear that. People today still reject everything that Jesus said about that great reality and ultimately point to the resurrection as the ultimate proof. People don't rise from the dead, therefore it can't be true. But Matthew tells us Two women go to the tomb after uh, the Sabbath is over when Jesus has been buried, and they go in part to, to bury him properly, to properly embalm him so that 
everything that has been done has been done properly for the one that they loved. But when they arrive at the tomb, the tomb is empty and Jesus is gone. Now, there are three conclusions we can reach about this. The first is that the woman just went to the wrong tomb, but we know they didn't. The other gospel writers have the woman arriving at the empty tomb, but Matthew wants to make sure we understand they weren't confused, they weren't grief-stricken and and taken a wrong turn. They arrived at the correct tomb. The stone was rolled away by an angel acting on behalf of God who then tells them exactly what has happened. Matthew wants to leave his readers in no doubt whatsoever. This is the right place. And we also know that there was a Roman guard camped around the tomb, and the women encountered that Roman guard. We know that. So it was the right tomb. We can't take that first option. The second option is that some of Jesus' enemies took his body away, or maybe his disciples came and stole his body. And yet the problem we have there is that the penalty for the Roman guard of the desecration of a tomb and the stealing of a body that they've been set to guard would be severe in the extreme. No way would the Roman guard have done that or allowed it. And if the authorities had taken the body of Jesus, when the disciples of Jesus began to cause trouble all over Jerusalem saying Jesus was alive, all the authorities had to do was produce the body. But they couldn't because it wasn't there. And the disciples of Jesus would not have gone to their deaths. And all of them bar one did go to their deaths, confessing that Jesus was alive if they really knew that they had actually stolen the body and the whole thing was a lie. So we don't have the opportunity to take the second option, that Jesus' body had been stolen. The only other option is that Jesus really is alive. For all that that defies our understanding. But if he is alive, then we have to do something with that. If Jesus is risen from the dead, despite the fact he had been crucified, stabbed in the chest, died, wrapped in cloth, and placed in a tomb with a massive boulder over the front of it, and a huge number of people all around, including a Roman guard, then we must consider the reality of Jesus' words that this last greatest miracle testifies to, that he is, in fact, the Savior of the world who has conquered sin and death. When the woman came to the tomb on the third day, it was empty. He wasn't there. An angel tells the woman their friend is alive, and in a moment, they go from feeling that Jesus has failed in his mission that he wasn't who he said he was, to being filled with hope and with joy. Jesus really has done it. He really has accomplished everything he said that he would, even though we didn't understand it at the time. And it means for them and for us that he's died to take our punishment. And if we believe in him and ask for his forgiveness and follow him, we can be forgiven, be given everlasting life with him. And from that moment on, we can face all of the challenges of this life, all of the frustrations that we experience with that hope that is able to carry us through, with that joy that lifts us in the face of despair. For I am alive in Christ. He has never left me. He has always been true. The fact that Jesus was alive again after dying meant that God had accepted his death in our place. 
And the women begin to experience the hope of that reality as we do today. So what are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to go from here with this knowledge if it is the case that that there are no real options other than to accept the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead or the greatest cover-up in the history of mankind has somehow been achieved despite the fact that countless numbers of people have been involved. One author, I think it may have been Chuck Colson, said that I believe in the resurrection of Jesus because 12 men went all the course of their lives consistently testifying to the reality of it and went to their deaths still proclaiming the truthfulness of it. And when I look back over the Watergate scandal, people couldn't keep a consistent story together for a matter of hours and days. Lies always work themselves out. Lies are always uncovered in the end. And yet, for 2,000 years, the resurrection of Jesus has never been successfully attacked and debunked by the production of someone who later went back on his, uh, his story that he really did see Jesus. So, what, what is it we're supposed to do? How do we respond to all of this? The women have that same question, in a sense. The angel tells them, Jesus isn't here, he's alive, and they have to make a decision. What, what are they going to do? The angel helped the women and, and give them instruction, which are still helpful for us today. The first thing we are to do is believe in him. That's what the women are told to do. Believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, they're looking at an empty tomb. So it might seem strange to us to think the angel has to tell them to believe, but let's put ourselves in their shoes. You will find any other explanation than the fact that this person has risen to new life because people don't do that. Of course, they're going to cast around for some other explanation, and yet the angel encourages them to faith that Christ really is risen. Are they in the right place? Are they seeing and hearing things? The angel reassures them. Believe. Come and see, they say. Don't just take our word for it. Come in and look. And as they go into the tomb, they see the place where the body was laid. They can look at the grave clothes that are still in the same shape that Jesus would have, would have made were he occupying them. And the other gospel writers draw out something of the, the detail of those things, which is helpful for us uh, to consider. They knew that he was there, but he's gone. There is no explanation. If I told you that I didn't believe in gravity, what would you think about me? You'd think I'd gone mad. Gravity is real, whether we believe it or not. It is invisible, and yet we can see its effects everywhere. Therefore, I ought to believe it. Well, the tomb is empty, and no one has ever explained how it can be empty in a satisfactory, in a logical manner that deals with all the facts of the story as the gospel writers present us and as history presents for us. The only logical conclusion is that Jesus was raised from the dead, and so the only logical conclusion is that we believe. And if we are willing to believe in the resurrection, we also ought to believe in the words of the one who was raised, to believe in Christ as our Savior and Lord. And that means that we're going to take God's Word seriously. We're going to apply it to ourselves rigorously. We're going to go and do the things that Jesus has called us to do because we can trust Him. 
We're going to follow him, secondly. The angels tell the women after they've seen enough to convince them they should go and follow this Jesus who's going ahead of them to Galilee. And if they go there, they'll see him. And the women really believe that he's alive, so they do go. Because he's their master. He is their Lord and their God. And if they don't go, it will be clear they don't really believe. And so it is with us. If I say that I believe in gravity, but then run around trying to convince people that I can fly at every opportunity, that I'm like Superman and that gravity really has no hold over me, again, you would think rightly that I've gone crazy. But you will rightly conclude, I don't believe in gravity. I can say it as much as I want, but my actions clearly testify that that's not true. In the Reformation, this became a great element of the the, the Protestant faith, that what you say is all good and well, but if your actions don't bear out your beliefs, you don't really believe them. So just stop saying you believe that. It is essential that we do what we say we believe, that we are transformed by our faith. We are called to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead because he is God. And if we believe this, we are expected to follow him wherever he leads, whatever he calls us to do. When he calls us to love those who are unlovely, we love them. When we are called to serve those that we think are undeserving, we serve them. When we are called to go and share the good news of the gospel, when we would rather be at comfort in our own homes with our feet up watching the telly, we go and we share because we believe, because the tomb is empty. We are called to believe. We are called to follow. We are called to worship him. The women are filled with joy, and they run to tell their friends, the disciples, who don't fully understand what's going on. And the women still don't fully understand what's going on, but they do believe, and all of a sudden, Jesus meets them. And it's almost as if he couldn't wait for them to get to Galilee before seeing his friends again and sharing with them the reality of the resurrection. And so he meets with them right away, and they fall at his feet, and they worship him. He's their master, their Lord, their Savior, their God. Everything he's told about them is true, and so it just all pours out of them. He's standing right in front of them. The natural thing for them to do is to worship. Worship is anything we do that gives God his right place in our lives. Every time we seat him on the throne of our hearts, the center of our being, we ascribe to him the glory he deserves. That is an act of worship. It doesn't have to be singing, but it can be. It doesn't have to be prayer, but it can be. It is also sitting, listening to his word and submitting ourselves to it and obeying it. It is also going and helping the poor and the downtrodden, the sick, and the lonely. It is building up our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It is engaging in the sharing of the gospel. It is all of that because it all ascribes glory to God. This is not an option. This is a requirement, and it bubbles up within us. It is a natural reaction in us to the fact that we have a God and a Savior who we love because He's transformed us, and He's testified to the reality of that transformation. Whether we feel it or not, in the empty tomb. Because Jesus is risen, we worship him. And lastly, because Jesus is risen, we will tell about him. 
The women are told to go and tell their friends about all they've seen and heard because the disciples must know so that they will believe and follow and worship as well. And the news is so good that everyone has to know, not just the the, the disciples, but all of the people in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and on into the ends of the world. 2,000 years ago, we can look back and see their faithfulness to that mission, that they did go and tell. For all they struggled to believe, struggled to understand, they did it. And not everyone will believe, and not everyone will follow, and not everyone will worship, but everyone must know. For this is the means by which God will save sinners, the proclamation of the gospel. We're told faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The word of the resurrection that testifies to it, the whole of Scripture, but the gospel in particular. And so everyone must know. And like the women and the disciples, many people in our world have been living in fear that they are alone, that they are cast adrift in this world, that there is nothing and no one to help them, that they are going to an end, and after that it will be nothingness, and all of life is rendered meaningless and pointless. But the good news is that for the hopeless, we have a hope. It is pictured. It is embodied in the empty tomb. There is a Savior. There is one who has overcome sin that leads us to death, one who overcomes death itself, who gives life hope and meaning and joy and glory. For those of you who've been Christians for a long time, do you remember how great it was to have a Savior like Jesus in those early days of your faith? Wasn't it amazing? Didn't you want to worship, read the Word of God, tell other people about the gospel? We take it for granted so often, don't we? It becomes commonplace and ordinary for us. But this is the most wonderful privilege in our lives, to know Him and to have Him as our Savior, to have such a Savior as this, who has gone to such a length to secure people like us from our own sins that He didn't have to bear on the cross, but he chose to. What joy to know such a wonderful Savior as Jesus. Ought we not to worship him by going and telling others of our joy? The issue in this little account in Matthew 28 is that the Bible claims Jesus has risen from the dead, that he is the Son of God, that he is the one who can save you to eternal life. And the question I have for you today is, what do you intend to do with that information? Will you be like the soldiers and the authorities who said, this is ridiculous, we'll have nothing to do with it? Will you be like the hard-hearted amongst the Jews of Jerusalem and uh, across the world who simply couldn't let go of their tradition and embrace their own Savior who had come for them? Or would you be like the woman who saw and believed and followed and worshipped their Savior, and told others all about Him. Why are you here this morning? It might be because this is just something for you to do. It's Easter Sunday, and this is what we do. But might it be that God is leading you to this place at this time to hear these words, Jesus is risen, and expects you to answer the challenge of that statement. What will you do? Well, the tomb is empty. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Come, worship, and follow him.
Amen. We're going to join together in prayer, and towards the end of this time, we'll have the opportunity to repeat together the words of the Lord's Prayer, which will be on the screen. So, let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the glory of the resurrection. We confess, Lord, it would never have occurred to us for a moment that to defeat sin and death, God himself would take on human flesh, and he who knew no sin would take all of our sins upon himself and die, taking your wrath, bearing our punishment, and so setting us free when we confess that he is our Savior and Lord, confess our sins, and trust in him. Lord God, in response to this, we do confess our sins. We lay ourselves before you and ask that you might forgive us, wash us clean, and rule over us every day of our lives. Lord, lead us on to worship you in spirit and in truth and to speak of you and the glory of the resurrection constantly. For we long that others might receive this wonderful gift that we have been given and be transformed as we have been transformed. We long this, Lord, not for ourselves only, but for our whole world. And so, Lord, as we come before you, we pray, Lord, those words that Jesus taught his disciples, that great pattern of prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.